I acknowledge the traditional owners of the land on which this podcast was recorded, and I pay my respects to elders past, present and emerging. This is Making a Difference, a podcast about people who are making change happen. On the show, you'll hear from people who are making a difference on a day-to-day basis, from the local level in their communities to change on a global scale. You'll learn what makes them tick and the values that are driving their actions. I'm your host, Steve Cooper. Now, I'm sure you've had a moment like this. There's a problem in your local neighbourhood, you know, a road that's in disrepair or a barking dog that's a nuisance and something needs to be done. Most of us would just post about it on Facebook, but not today's guest. On today's episode, I speak to Janet Cribbis, who took the bold step to solve her problems by running for local council. Janet is the former Port Phillip councillor and mayor. In our discussion, you'll hear about what actually happens after you're elected to local council and why making change isn't always so easy. We're going to talk today about the role of councils, councillors, and there might be people out there who are thinking of standing for the upcoming council elections in October. And I thought it would be good to find a real-life person who's been a councillor, and as luck would have it, here's Janet Quivers, who has been a Port Phillip councillor and mayor, and by way of disclosure is, I think, a friend and occasional coffee companion. Hello, Janet Quivers. Hello, Stephen Cooper. How are you? I'm well. Thanks for coming along and chatting today because you're welcome. I did think there's a lot you'd know about this gig that maybe anyone who's interested might be interested in about what to expect and how to campaign. I hope I know something. I might not know a lot, but I might know something. I was wondering just to start though, Janet, the role of councillor, because for a whole bunch of reasons, get some interesting raps. What are the sort of the archetypes of people who will stand for council? There are different motivations for people to stand. And from my observation, what I've observed is there are people who have a particular issue that they are passionate about and have been community activists about. They will campaign on that particular issue and they will get community support on that particular issue and they will be elected. So that's one person who might want to stand. Another person might generally have, you know, a good connection with community and think this is like the next step. So have they been on the preschool committee and the scout yep. committee and, and things exactly, like that? Yep. Exactly. They might have started in the preschool group, the kinders, the play groups, those kind of uh, groups. They could be the scouts, the footy, the cricket, people who have been actively involved in in their community and across the board and good connections in the community. So it's a logical next step. Yep. It's kind of like the logical next step. Okay. Who else might? Uh, Well, obviously the political parties (laughs) might, you know. I'm so glad you mentioned (laughs) the career politicians. (laughs) The career politicians who seem to think that starting at at, uh, the local government level, the grassroots is a really good place to start because it's the closest to the people. So they kind of run because their aspirations are elsewhere but it's a good it's a good launching place for them because yeah. they've lots of skills. And, and to be fair federal and state government or parliaments are littered with people who have come through the ranks through local government completely and some really excellent people like julian julian hill's been a fantastic asset to federal government and he was fantastic in service here in port phillip as a councillor and mayor yeah federal member for bruce 
Julian. Any others? You haven't mentioned sort of shonky property developers or... Well, see, that's not been my experience because Port Phillip doesn't have shonky property developers who stand to run. It, it's true because you look at other councils and you hear some of the irregularities about some of the councils' behaviours and, yes, property deals is a really, really hot topic. We might come back to property deals yeah, yeah, being yeah. a hot topic. Yeah. But isn't it true too that... Um, Whilst there might be an element of that, it's in the minority, but it does get a very high proportion of the publicity. Indeed, indeed. And that's usually the case, you know, like you'll have 99 that do the right thing, one doesn't. And where the focus is and where it becomes disreputable is in that one person. And it is unfortunate because people who generally stand for council and who who are councillors work hard, work very hard. Janet, what about the other one, those the councillors perhaps who are disaffected with the organisation and that's why they run, or there might be various well, degrees could, of disaffection or need for change. How is that, how is the achievement of change, how does that play out in the role? I think that it uh, plays out with the uh, ratepayers associations. There are several different associations within a municipality that uh, figured that they could do the role of a councillor and bring the organisation into line much better than what's happening now. They are disaffected. They either see the visibility of councillors uh, or council uh, as being really low or they see that they're ineffective or they see that spending far too much in areas that they disagree with and, and that motivates them to be selected from their little association to be run for council. But the minute you step into the councillor role or to the mayor's role, the accountability seemed to be really different and getting 100% of what it was that you believed in in the first place doesn't always happen when you get in there because of the competing demands. And so the poor old councillor or the mayor ends up getting put under the spotlight in a, in a really significant way and it and, and it causes tensions on both sides of the camp. Do you think people are alerted to that before they get to council or is that a bit of a surprise when you arrive, the fact that? I think it comes as a big surprise. People go in with all the integrity in the world and with all the good intention in the world and then find themselves in a position where they've got so many other competing demands and they've got so many other issues that they've got to balance up against that one particular one that is important to their association, their group or little small splinter groups and it can't always be effective in getting everything that they went into it to, to stand for. Yeah. What's your winning formula to be as effective as you can at at least getting some things? For me personally it has been a, a collaboration. It's a kind of sense of talking, uh, listening and um, trying to find at first, what our common ground is, and then um, trying to work on the things that are not so common. Sometimes it works better than others. But I think having a sense of real genuine openness and uh, a sense of being authentic and having integrity that sort of just comes out without having to say, well, gee, I really I have a lot of integrity. It, it is who you are and people will see that and people will see that you have a genuine kind of sense of wanting to collaborate and it comes across the person who you're talking with actually senses that you're trying to meet where they're at and develop and get to a point where there's more consensus than not. 
it's an interesting one, Janet. There's been um, a real shift in the legislation in the last four or five years to create a much greater and more visible emphasis on the role of the council plan, that mm -hmm. sort of strategic role, um, as being central at the way that the council and the mayor should operate. But it's much more fun being transactional and involved in the conflict. I don't, and I say fun in inverted commas. <laughs> <laughs> but do you find the conflict in term not in terms of where you want to be, but in terms of what draws your time has a sort of an alluring effect? <laughs> well, it has a get you by the neck effect, and um, you've got no choice effect, and you're engaged in it whether you want it or not. And to me, it seems that uh, if you have problem solving capacity. And if you have a, a way of being able to move through problems and your focus is about trying to solve a problem moving forward rather than just continuing to, to hold on to the problem, you get drawn into those situations and you're kind of looking for a way forward to move a situation or a project in the direction that is going ahead, not looking back. So there's a, you know, 24th of October, within a week or two after that, there's a bunch of new councillors at most of the 79 councils in Victoria, and their first job is to develop the council plan. What can yeah. they bring to that? That's a really, it's almost this high-level yeah. document that, you know, there might be people yeah. who didn't get on the council. Nobody tells you that the first thing you've got to do is develop a council plan. And um, <laughs> I remember my first experience after having been inducted into what it is to be a councillor, which was a really good experience. Let's do the council plan. You know, what are your priorities? And you're kind of going, what? Sorry? Okay. So, um uh, yes, we're supposed to know about all of these things and uh, have a, some kind of grasp across the city because you don't just go, okay, my priority is in my ward and this is what I want. It's like, well, these are the priorities across the city because you're presented with all of these things. And it's like, well, what are we going to kind of focus on and where are we going to go and what do we want to achieve as a, a council group and how do we want to engage with the community about that? And it's kind of like, okay, so yes, you have some experience at, at being in the community and working on particular issues in the community, but it becomes a completely different kettle of fish when you get onto council to work on, on priorities that go across the city, not just in your own little patch of the world. And everybody wants to have a win in their own patch of the world because that's what they get in there to do. They want to go and improve things in their own ward. But in that sense, how does someone who just wants to get some things done locally and some stuff built and, you know, roads or footpaths made better, how do you help them to sort of see what the strategies and the objectives and the key result areas are that will be in a council plan that will help them to get to their own objectives? What are the things that people need to know? Yeah, it, I suspect the practice would be that you look at the current council plan and look at two council plans before, that that would be a really sensible thing to do if you're actually going to be a councillor, that you understand what the current council plan is, what the one before is, to see, you know, whether some of those issues haven't already been picked up or in the pipeline to be picked up and that there's a kind of sense of there's an order of things. You don't have to get it immediately. If you know it's going to come in the third year, that's already been prioritised or that's already been put into the plan. Understand first and foremost where your starting point is and to see whether it isn't actually in there or not or whether it needs to be instated in there 
in some stage in the term that you're going to be on council. So you're almost going at the risk of putting words in your mouth about sort of really getting into the nuts and bolts of that relationship between the budget and the council plan. You have to. You actually have to understand it. You really do. In order to be effective, in order to actually be able to negotiate that space, you need to understand the ground in which you're standing on and both budget and plan. How frustrating is it when you think through how much of the council budget you have so little control over or how little you get That's to influence? The surprise. Surprise. <laughs> it's like 90% of that budget set year on year and you've got 10% to play around the edges and you kind of go, what? <laughs> All of us want that 10% because it's still not enough for the things that we want to have done. And it, it becomes a contest then. You have to be able to actually work in a team. You need to be able to negotiate with your fellow councillors. You need to be able to put your point across and, and the, you know, articulate your reasons for why you think yours has a priority over theirs. And we're encouraged to work as a team, you know, like this kind of sense is unity is life and disunity is death. And literally, you know, sort of like councils that do have disagreements and who publicly splat, they go splat, basically. But there is a sense of of having to, A, somehow present a united front as a council and yet have vigorous, robust conversations in the boardroom when you're, you're trying to negotiate this kind of tiny speck of money in the whole scheme of things. And even a contest of ideas, sort of like a contest of priorities and what shouldn't shouldn't be included in in their plan. That's all for negotiation. So you've got to have some fairly robust abilities to actually get onto council. Janet, that's not out there in the material when people are standing. I always hear them say they're going to keep the rates down, oppose inappropriate development and make the organisation more efficient. Yeah. No one says I'm going to deal with better outcomes and maintain relationships. It's not one of the first things that spring to mind, is it? Because it's, it's a tangible thing to say, well, I'm going to make the organisation more efficient, keep the rates low. Well, we've got rate capping now. So, you know, that's a kind of almost a redundant argument in lots of ways. You know, it's like the, with the rate capping, you'd be wanting to argue that you need to have an increase in your rates rather than a decrease because year on year it impacts on what the council can actually deliver. Yeah, so that teaming sort of function, um, and you've touched on that already about the personal attributes. What are the shared attributes? What are the things that groups of councillors in this weird thing that's a team in an environment that's set up to create conflict, what do groups of councillors do to stay together or what's important? I think what's important is to have the conversations around the table that it's really tempting to caucus behind who doesn't do it really as councillors. So caucus outside caucus, outside you know, of the meetings. Do your little deals and and that brings all councils a cropper. All councils that have done that have actually fallen into yeah. disrepute <laughs> and have just lately been sacked. So it's like if you can't work effectively as a group of people and there's too much division, then you're not doing your job as a governance in the governance space and you can't effectively lead a community. So see you later. Yeah, so when we're talking about failure of governance, we're talking about people who don't know their roles or just can't yep. communicate effectively yep. with each other. Yep. Yep. And to be able to compromise, the art of compromise, honourable compromise as we call it, <laughs> the art of honourable compromise is essential. 
So you don't get everything, but you get something. And everybody gets something and no one gets nothing. That is an art that you learn along the way because, you know, we're taught that we have to be winners and that to compromise is a really bad thing. But it's the compromise that gets the greater good going. You need to have the capacity to be able to be humble enough to go something for these communities is better than nothing. Isn't it funny that, um, you know, the term politician is a bit pejorative, but in some ways you've described it as a fairly noble art. Indeed. <laughs> it is. <laughs> now, in spite of all of that, there might still be someone listening who um, still wants to stand. What would be your normal ground rules if someone was running a campaign? What's your winning formula there? The winning formula from my perspective would be that um, you try and stick to issues. Don't attack the people. Don't attack the parties. Don't attack each other. Stick to the issues. Find the issues that you find that you think are the most important or that you have conferenced with your community group about being the most important and that you feel passionate about and stand on those and people will come with you and that you don't play dirty. Don't play dirty because it comes back to bite you, that you need to actually, if you're going to espouse to have integrity and that you're going to espouse to have an ethical manner, then you need to behave as such. Do as I do, not as I say. That's critical to me. I think that, that that's the thing, that sort of sense of authenticity, that sense of real integrity comes from that. You've got to behave like that all of the time. It's not just sometimes to get elected and it's not just sometimes because you think it's a good thing. It has to be who you are. You've got to have a level of emotional intelligence, a level of awareness of yourself and where, what it is that you bring to a situation. So it's like bring your best self all the time and that way people will see that that's what, they're, that's what they get and, and there's no surprises and people don't get disillusioned because you're just you're telling it as it is from the beginning. So just be honest and don't overpromise. In fact, don't promise anything. <laughs> 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 don't promise. <laughs> don't promise. I think I learned that from the last uh, the CEO that was there at Port Phillip because sometimes you might not be able to deliver in the first term. If you're really interested in bundling the power lines, don't say that that's what you're going to do when you first get in there because it ain't going to happen. It might be a priority, but you might not get there. <laughs> exactly right. You might not get there in two or three terms, yeah. Yeah. I love that when you said, what's the winning formula? You started quite reasonably and properly with reflecting on yourself. Mm. But then if you were going to the next step, what do successful candidates need around them and how do they marshal that? Observing people who actually have the art of negotiation is really, like, critical. The, the ability to listen, the ability to negotiate, that ability to be part of a team and not want to be uh, the leader all of the time, that kind of sense. I find that that sense of if you empower somebody in our society, it's like you lose something. To empower someone means that you've got to give away something of yours. And in actual fact, to empower somebody means that you stand in your own power while they stand in theirs. And so you both have the power together and you can achieve a whole lot more by having that mindset then I've got to get a win over you and somehow I've got to get a little bit more than you. And it's kind of like that's our system falls down there. You well, know, our well, exactly. And in a narrow media space where conflict sells 
and in a social media environment where conflict creates clicks. That cream that you've described doesn't always rise to the top, does it? It's very easy for the the divisive and the noisemaker to put something out there that's, again, might seem attractive. Yeah, and you've got to have a pretty tough outer shell because when the media gets involved, and now with social media, oh, my God, it's like <laughs> the anonymous disparaging can happen from anywhere and anyone, and it's almost like people forget that that person receiving this is a person who has blood running through their veins and a heart that beats, a family maybe, and that they actually have feelings. God forbid they've got feelings. It might be wounding to read all of these really general statements about what they're doing and how they're doing it and what they're not doing or how they're not doing it well. And then you you get into the maligning and um, misrepresenting and you kind of got to know yourself well in order not to fall into what could be a really big dark hole because you're not being represented the way you know you are. And the media looks for a story that causes people to want to read something. So it's always about a conflict and it's always pitting one against another. It's always the polarities that are shown. And if you can't somehow come back to centre and come back to who you are, then you can be ripped in one way or another and all you're doing is just reacting. You actually can't hear what's being said to you. You can't process something. You can't come up with an answer that will be something that engages both parties because what you're doing is defending yourself. You're closed off and you're just reacting to someone. You're just reacting to a situation and that never brings out the best in you. And I don't know how we would create an environment where the ground rules are that you try and bring your best selves to a situation and that we listen to one another and that we try and understand what our end game is and how we might be able to get there together. You know, like what do we need to do to get there together? This is what we want. What do we need to do to get there together? So, Janet, what was your funniest moment in local government? I think what was funny and sad at the same time for me was our very first planning meeting where one of the other councillors and I were sitting next to each other and inside the gallery there was about 50 or 60 people and we thought the first council meeting that we had was half a dozen, was fine, but there was about 60 people in there and they were angry and they were really wild about this planning application and they were passionate and they were pleading and they were like, we were just about burying them in a, in a coffin. They were so upset and it was going to be so detrimental to them. I turned around and looked at Sadie and we went, oh, my God, we did not sign up for this. This is not what we signed up for. It's like we signed up to do good, not to kill people, you know, with planning applications. It was just vile. It was just so awful. And it was like it was doomsday. Like it was the end of the civilization. We'd known it if we had approved this this application, which, you know, at the end we had to approve because it was there was nothing that we could do but approve it because it was compliant. I think the only concession I got was to keep a tree in the front and that was it. And it was like, oh, my God, we can't do this. We can't do this every week. <laughs> we can't do this every time the planning committee sits, you know. It's like, ah! But anyway. We've been talking with former Port Phillip councillor and mayor, Janet Krivis. Janet, thanks so much for talking. <laughs> You're very welcome, Stephen Cooper. Thanks for listening. This podcast is produced by Civic Mind, specialists in governance and ethics for local and state government agencies. 
To find out more, head to the website civicmind.com.au. And so you don't miss an episode, make sure you subscribe to Making a Difference in your favourite podcast app. And if you liked the episode, please leave me a five-star review. It really helps other people to find the show. I'm your host, Steve Cooper, and I'll speak to you next time.